Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, today. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Harvest Time. My wife was born and raised on the Canadian prairies, Saskatchewan to be specific, and although I, like her, came from a farming family, her experience and mine are vastly different. Her experience squares with the wide open spaces of Canada's vast wheat belt. And when I first met her, I was amazed with the ease in which as as we passed by grain fields, I mean, we were speeding by in the car, and she was able to identify which field was wheat and which was barley and canola and rapeseed flax and whatever else was out there and found it fascinating how she was so quickly able to identify the differences, but as she did it as one who learned it from childhood. I mean, this was her world and, and she reveled in it. You know, fall on the prairies is like nothing else. And the grain yellows and farmers can simply look at their field and estimate the time until harvest. And then once the harvest begins, it seems like no one sleeps. The work is relentless, and the rest can be found when the harvest is in. The Bible often speaks of harvest as an image at the end of the age. Once the harvest is ripe, God sends out his reapers. Joel 3 verse 13 says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Matthew 13 39, Jesus says, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. In Revelation 14, 14 to 20, we find the last in a series of seven visions. The visions as a whole speak about the present and future spiritual warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Satan. These visions speak of how the present and future warfare tumbles into the arena of humanity, causing great suffering for the church. But when we come to the final of the seven visions, we see a vision of harvest time. The end of the age has come. So please notice that these seven visions are a part of an interlude in the wider drama of the book of Revelation. As soon as John has given these visions, he will bring us back to the outworking of God's purposes. But these visions are intended to give the church both an understanding of the spiritual realities of the great conflict they're facing, as well as providing them with the hope they need to succeed. You see, the book of Revelation helps the church both to understand her present battle, but it also helps the church to understand where that battle is going in the future. See, a time will come when there will be a culmination of evil, but God is still in control. History is going somewhere. Things are not going around in circles. The world is moving toward harvest time. Now, as we read this final in a series of seven visions, I want you to notice that Revelation 14, 14 to 20, actually describes two harvests. And I will help you unpack that. But before I read the text, make sure that you don't lose the purpose of why the vision is given. God will keep his word. He will punish the wicked and he will reward the righteous. Don't lose hope. Keep your eyes on the prize and and take notice that harvest time is coming. Okay, let's read the text, Revelation 14, 14 to 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay, you'll remember that I said that there are two harvests mentioned here. The first is the wheat harvest, and the second is the grape harvest. So let's start with the wheat harvest. I've already made mention of the fact that wheat harvest in the Old Testament is an image of the final judgment and of the end of the age. Now, in Matthew 13, in the parable of the sower, Jesus presented himself as the one who had gone out to plant seed. And and you'll remember that some fell on the hard path and some on thorny ground and some on rocky soil and others on good soil. In that parable, Jesus is the sower who patiently put in the harvest. And I think rightly understood, the wheat harvest of Revelation 14 is not the judgment of the wicked, but it's the harvest of the righteous. This is a vision of Christ calling his people home and gathering them up and bringing them into his eternal reward. The vision begins with one like the Son of Man, and that's clearly a reference to Daniel's vision. It's found in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. And there the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, The Son of Man is given dominion and a kingdom that all people will serve him. And so to call Jesus the Son of Man here in Revelation is to remember that his rule is over all the nations. And the white cloud reminds us that at the second coming, Jesus is often referred to as coming with the clouds of heaven. The golden crown is a symbol that he's the king. And the sickle is the authority that has been given to him to call his people home. That's the hope of the church. You know, some Bible readers struggle with verse 15, in which an angel calls out to the Son of Man and commands him to put in his sickle and reap. And that seems wrong to them. I mean, how can an angel command Jesus? You might remember how emphatic the book of Hebrews is, that Jesus is infinitely superior to the angels. And for that reason, some Bible teachers have argued that the Son of Man here in Revelation 14 can't refer to Jesus. But I'm sure that it does. The angel who seems to command him, we're told, has just come out of the temple. He's an emissary sent from the Father. And if you think about it, this is a marvelous picture. Jesus, the Son, although he is fully equal with the Father, awaits the Father's instruction. And when the Father commands... The Son immediately springs into action and completes the directive of the Father. And that's completely in line with the rest of Scripture. The Father planned our salvation from eternity past, and in planning our salvation, He sent or He commissioned His only Son to become our Savior. The Son, out of love for the Father, obeyed the Father even to death on the cross. And so, just like the first coming of Jesus... When Jesus returns to collect his harvest, he awaits the instruction of the Father. But now in this vision, the command is now given from the Father, and with the command, the Son swings the sickle and brings the harvest safely home. 
This is the time when the son brings in his own, and he loses none of those whom the father has given to him. And this, my brother and sister, this is the blessed hope of the church. Titus 2 verse 13 tells believers we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he appears, says 1 John 3 verse 2, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Revelation 1 7 at the beginning of the book promises us he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. That's the glorious appearance of our Lord coming for those who have waited for his appearance. See, my question to you, my dear listener, is a very simple question. Are you waiting for him? Or have you fallen asleep and fallen in love with this world? Is your hope in this life? Or is it in him who comes to receive his own? See, the most significant thing that can be asked of anyone is which harvest do you belong to? Are you a part of the wheat that's gathered into the barn or a part of the chaff that is burned with unquenchable fire? You see, no more important question can be asked of anyone. If you've not repented of your sins and fled to Christ for salvation, you're a part of the wrong harvest. Now is the time to make that matter right before God. Now, just a note to help us understand what we've just read. There are those who will argue that since verse 16 says that the earth is now reaped, they're going to argue that this must be a reference to the rapture of the church and that the rest of the events of Revelation happen after the church is gone. And and I think it's a mistake to put chapter 14 into that timeline. So please remember that while this passage speaks of a reality, that is, Christ will come to take his church home, it's not the intention of this vision to tell us exactly the timeline of when that will happen, only to proclaim the certainty that it will happen. You see, when we get to chapter 15, the drama of the seven bowls, we're going to see the very end of the age leading to the second coming of Jesus. See, the point of this vision here is to help Christians never forget that Christ has not forgotten us. As soon as the Father sends him for us, he is coming. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. Please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. We've come to the second part of the vision of the harvest. This one, as we have already seen, is the vision of the grape harvest, and this one is rather ominous. Verse 17 begins, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Now, we've read that Christ himself reaps the harvest of the righteous, but now we find an angel coming out of the presence of God to perform this function on the wicked. 
But this angel is not alone because verse 18 says, And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called in a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the cluster from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. I think it's significant that this second angel comes out from the altar. That's because all the way back in Revelation 6, verse 9, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And the next verse tells us they are crying out to God, asking him how long it would be before he judged the wicked and avenged their blood. So this second angel comes out from where those prayers are offered. And when God sends him out, he sends him out in answer to the prayers of God's people. I mean, Jesus spoke of that very thing. In Luke 18, verse 7, it records him as saying, And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? And so consider the context of Revelation. In the series of visions we've already been given, that is in chapters 12 to 14, we've read about the dragon who has sought to kill the child born of the woman. And once he realizes he can't kill the child, in rage, he takes after the woman. And remember, the child represents the Messiah. The woman is Israel, but God supernaturally protects her. Further enraged, the dragon inspires his beast to kill the other offspring of the woman, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And and this, as we have seen, is a reference to the people of God or to his church. And as we've also seen, the seven churches who received this letter of Revelation would have identified with this. Yeah, it's true that some of them had already been killed for their faith and others were suffering. They could identify with this story. But now they read that in the future, this warfare is only going to intensify. There are going to be many more martyrs in the future when the great tribulation arrives. And as each martyr is ushered into glory, into heaven, one can picture each one calling out for justice. They join their prayers with the martyrs throughout the ages. And then when the grape harvest is ripe, God sends his angel from the altar of sacrifice. We notice that this angel is called the one who has authority over the fire. The Old Testament altar has an altar of fire, but but here I think the fire must refer to the fires of God's judgment. You see, having been entrusted by God to bring about justice, this angel flies out from the courts of God. He calls to the angel who has a sickle in his hand. Put your sickle out, he says. The grapes are ripe, he says. Now is the moment of harvest. Now, verse 19 says, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, clearly, the image is the image of the grape harvest used to make wine. The image is the image of crushing the grapes as an image of the wrath against the grapes. It's an image that's borrowed from the Old Testament. In Joel chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. But I think Isaiah 63, verses 2 to 4 is even more graphic. It tells of Isaiah asking God a question and then God providing an answer. So the passage begins in God appearing with crimson garments, marching in mighty strength. And so in verse 2, Isaiah asks his question, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? 
And then comes God's answer. And so I'm reading verses 3 and 4. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And then further to verse 6, God says, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. Then I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. See, the image of God tramping down his enemies so that their lifeblood spatters on his garment is an image that Isaiah presses on us. The book of Hebrews tells us it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when I think about the nature of these visions, I can't help but think of Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. You know, in Amos' day, there were people who were awaiting the day of the Lord, the day which the kingdom of God would reign. But while they lived in expectation, they were also living in wickedness. They denied the poor justice. They, they took advantage of people. They had become very comfortable with doing evil. And so Amos says to them, I'm quoting, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? See, from the perspective of both Testaments, both the first and the second, the coming of Jesus brings righteousness to the earth, and it's only bad news if you belong to Babylon. And so the reality of the coming of the Lord forces us to choose. So I'm reading Titus 2, 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Understand this in the light of what Jesus said to the seven churches. The church in Ephesus had lost their first love, and Jesus calls them to repent. The church in Smyrna had suffered so much, and he urges them to remain faithful, and they will receive the crown of life. The church in Pergamum had some who were flirting with false teaching, and they're warned that Christ might come in war against them. The church in Thyatira had become open to sexual immorality and was warned that they should repent or face death. The church of Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but they were dead, and they were warned that Christ would come as a thief, and so they'd better wake up. The church in Philadelphia was told to carry on in patient endurance in the midst of much hardship. And the church in Laodicea was warned that if they were to continue in sin, Christ would spit them out of his mouth. You see what a study of Revelation and the study of end times is all about? It's not so that believers will quarrel with each other as to which is the best approach to the book or whether you're pre- or post-trip. It's not so that we can draw out a timeline as to when the Antichrist will arise or when Russia will invade Israel or when the temple will be rebuilt or when there will be a ten-nation confederacy. And listen, the book of Revelation is a serious call to repentance and faithfulness in the light of Christ's coming. We do not want to be, as Matthew 25 describes the foolish virgins, unprepared at the coming of the bridegroom. Be awake, says the scripture. Be actively involved in the Lord's business. Keep short accounts with God. Be willing to repent of all evil. Be steadfast. Don't worry if evil seems to have its day today. 
Don't sell your soul out to the Antichrist. Put your hope in God. Trust in Christ's cross and not in this world. The kingdom of God is coming. The last verse in Revelation 14 ends with the words, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, 1,600 stadia is roughly equivalent to 180 miles, or about 290 kilometers. So what's the meaning of this vast area covered in blood? Well, first, notice how quickly we've gone from the image of a winepress to the image of a military slaughter. And some have suggested that the distance is about the length of the land of Israel. That is, the blood will fill Israel to its borders. And others have referred to Joel 3, verse 2 and verse 12, the summons of God, the nations are to come to the valley of Jehoshaphat or Armageddon. And here is the message from Revelation. Don't place your loyalty among the community of nations. The community of nations don't have a glorious destiny. They have a destiny that eventually meets in Armageddon where the land is filled with blood. Great defeat and horrible slaughter await. I wish to speak to anyone who's never confessed their sins to God and never surrendered their life to Jesus as Savior. Pray and ask the Lord to forgive your sins. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. Trust Him and Him alone and allow Him to be your Savior and join the company of the redeemed and join in the future of the redeemed. John, with always, when, when I look at the book of Revelation, I, I wonder if we, we risk getting distracted by all the symbolism and the dates. Yeah, we sure do. I mean, obviously, as we're going through Revelation, you know, every one of us approaches this book with a different set of knowledge and, and different teaching that we've had in the past. And so, you know, I, I know that I run a risk by teaching on Revelation. There are people that will deeply agree with what I'm saying and others will say, well, how about this and how about the other thing and so forth. But, you know, if we continue to keep our eyes on the main thing, and it has to do with the nature of our God, the nature of the salvation that he offers, the fact that history is moving towards a, a point in time when, when Christ is glorified and evil is defeated. I mean, if we can keep our eyes on those issues, I think it helps bring us together rather than to divide us. And so I think that's key in our study. Thanks, John. And remember to continue to join us again tomorrow in our study of the book of Revelation right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Four years ago, one of the most unique radio ministry programs in Canada was launched. No one imagined the response, the impact five minutes would have worldwide. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway has become a staple for those looking to be encouraged, challenged, searching for hope and joy, always founded in a walk with Jesus. In 2019, we're celebrating five years of Laugh Again, and we're doing so in the same unique way we launched the program, a Laugh Again Caribbean cruise, February 3rd to the 10th, 2019. Details are still under construction, but if you're looking for a week of refreshment, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with family and friends, join Phil Calloway, Isaac Dagno of Indelt Ministries, and special musical guests and entertainment to be announced soon. For information on how you can be part of the fifth anniversary Laugh Again cruise, check out laughagain.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.